entrepreneurs basically see the world as it should be and then you know use their expertise whether it's in science or policy or you know technology what have it to create that world for all of us to enjoy The NFX podcast is about seeing what others do not and getting at the true mechanisms behind people and companies that endure change in the world. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know by leaving a rating and review and sharing with your founder friends you think should listen. You can also discover more content like other episodes, transcripts, essays, and videos at nfx.com. And now, on to the show. So hello, this is Omri, general partner at NFX, uh, investing in uh, companies at the intersection of biology and technology. And today, it's uh, my pleasure to be with uh, two of my favorite people. So Jen Dion, founder and CEO of Pumpkin Seed and a former Stanford professor. Hi, Jen. Hi, Omri. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great. And then uh, Yaniv Erich, co-founder and CEO of Eleven Therapeutics and a former Columbia professor. Hey, thank you for having me. Pleasure. And the reason I'm saying that there are former professors is we're going to talk about scientists entrepreneurs. So we're going to talk about scientists leaving academia to start a company. Now, usually it's not the professors, right? Usually the professors are the scientific advisors and it's the PhD or postdoc that leaves. But in this case, it's two amazing professors that published a lot and are very successful in top universities around the world that decided to leave and start companies. So the first question is, you know, maybe if you can take us through your journey from PhD to professor to founder. We'd love to hear about it and your companies. Let's start with Jim. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Amri. Really great question. Maybe I'll start off by saying that I grew up in Rhode Island on the East Coast of the United States. And my mom was a nurse. My dad was a construction worker. And my inspiration for science actually came from the X-Files where I would watch special agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully basically solve mysteries on a daily basis or whenever the latest X-Files episode came out. So when I was very young, I thought I wanted to be a paranormal researcher, just like them. And I would go to brick and mortar bookstores and start reading about metaphysics. And it turns out the metaphysics section was right next to kind of astrophysics and quantum physics. So gradually, I kind of made my way into like heavier and heavier physics topics and decided that would be a really fun career to pursue. So I did my undergrad at Washington University in St. Louis, majoring in both physics and uh, system science and mathematics, then went to Caltech in Pasadena to get my PhD in applied physics. And at Caltech, I was exposed to the pretty wondrous world of nanoscience and got to create some really cool new materials and devices, including negative refractive index materials and kind of nanoscale optical modulators and uh, received a faculty offer from Stanford right after graduation. But to be honest, at that point, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with my career or what sort of science I wanted to pursue. And most of my closest friends at Caltech were actually in chemistry and biochemistry. And throughout the course of my PhD had exposed me to the amazing advances that were happening both in synthetic chemistry and in synthetic biology. So I wound up deferring my faculty position for a year to do a postdoc in chemistry that was up at Berkeley and thought was that I could learn a bit more about some of those incredible advances happening both in organic and inorganic synthetic chemistry and biology. I had a great time as a postdoc and wound up starting as a faculty member at Stanford about a year after that postdoc. So I've been there since 2010 in the material science department and also in the radiology department in the School of Medicine. And I've largely focused on like new ways to kind of wield light at the nano and molecular scale. 
In other words, we use light to detect and also to direct molecules, you know, with an emphasis on improved health and sustainability. And in the past, you know, decade, but probably especially like, you know, punctuated by the pandemic, you know, I've realized that being an academic scientist allows for forefront research to happen, kind of regardless of how fundamental that research is. And I think that's one of the incredible things about, you know, academia, like as long as you're pursuing state of the art, rigorous, creative science, like there's a space for good work to be done in academia. But to do impactful work, I think it's really critical to drive that innovation that's happening in the lab out into the world. And that's ultimately what led me to being a founder. I think my research group at Stanford has always tried to focus on, you know, innovative, impactful technologies. And if you really want to get that out into the hands of, you know, the broader public, it's, you know, critical to drive that innovation out yourself. So I think being a founder is the path that allows for the most accelerated translation of impactfully fruitful technologies out into the world. So yeah, in about five minutes, that's my journey from PhD to founder. And now super excited to be working with NFX and Omri on my first company, Pumpkin Seed, which essentially imagines life without labels. So how can we do life speed reads of biological bits, you know, be it uh, proteins, gene fragments, metabolites, whole cells without having to do labels? Amazing. Thank you so much. And Yaniv actually didn't go from starting his own, from academia to starting his own company. In the middle, he went to a big company and became CTO of that company. But Yaniv, go ahead. Tell us about your story. Yeah, it's fascinating, Jen. We have, I think, like some parallel like lines and some things that are quite different. So yeah, it's, it was exciting to hear what, what you said. So I started my career. I was always a nerd and always like was interested in how things work and kind of like think about things. But I think I got my best entrepreneur training while I was at the army. I joined in Israel. We have a mandatory army service. I joined at age of 18, just directly from high school to the Israeli NSA. And it's a very entrepreneur place to be there, right? Because it's like, it's a big place on one hand, but it's very like bottom up approach, not like a, an ordinary army where you get like orders and things like that, but you can come up with like totally crazy projects. And if you convince enough people, they will actually allow you to do this type. And you can very like quite rapidly be in front of the head of this unit and a person that is usually like 25 years older than you and, and speak with this person if you have a very good idea that you can defend. So it was a lot of fun for me. I stayed there for nine years looking at many things related to like, you know, scientific inquiry, but kind of like less like academic type of inquiry, but more kind of like type of like street fighting science that you need to get things done quite quickly and, and get to the bottom of things very rapidly and to deploy and to convince people in what you do is actually worth pursuing. And after nine years over there, I did my undergraduate while I was my service in computational neuroscience at Aviv University. In during that time, I also went to Cold Spring Harbor to do a summer program, and I fell in love in the place, and I decided to apply for a PhD in the U.S. And this was quite quite amazing. I moved to Cold Spring Harbor. It was a very rapid PhD of uh, three and a half years. I was lucky, and I lived with Jim Watson in his house for these like three years out of these three and a half years. It was very generous to us. So I lived with my wife there. And after that, and I decided to focus on high-throughput sequencing, which was at that time was you know, kind of like an emerging technology. I knew how to program. I loved like thinking about engineering. So I started working on multiple algorithms for high throughput sequencing. And after I graduated, I immediately got a position as an independent PI at the Whitehead Institute of MIT and moved there and decided to focus on human genetics and looking at how the intersection between the internet and human genetics. For instance, how we can recover the surnames of males by looking at the Y chromosome 
and using some internet searches, we can actually identify them. This manuscript created quite a stir. So after a few years at MIT, I was recruited by Columbia University to be an associate professor of computer science and computational biology, moved my group over there. And maybe I think kind of like one of my frustration was that in 2016, my lab decided to put a website called DNA Land, dna.land, that allowed individuals to contribute their direct-to-consumer genomics results to scientific studies, to this website. And in exchange, we analyzed their genome, decomposed their ethnicity, find relatives, did some fun analysis of their genome, and we consented them to volunteer their genome. So this website, so kind of like if you did a 23andMe, you could actually download your text file and upload it to this website. And it was a very successful project. Within the first week, we collected more than 3,000 genomes using this strategy. And if you think about how much time it takes for like a single lab to collect 3,000 genomes, you, you, you know, we solved that in a week. This was quite amazing, and the website took off, and we collected over 200,000 genomes using this strategy. But the frustration part was that it was very hard to scale up this website using academic setting. Luckily, I had a very good programmer that we worked for years, but you need more than a programmer and two PhD students to scale up a website. You need customer support because people complain, so I need to hire someone that is just like handling emails three times a week. And you need a product manager, but there is no type of role as a product manager in academia. And you need all these type of things that basically in academic setting, it was nearly impossible to accomplish. And it was just kind of like for me, it was a lost opportunity because we could scale the website, I think, like 10 times bigger had we had, you know, the right infrastructure, not like technical infrastructure, not the computing infrastructure was easy, but the HR infrastructure to hire the right people and to retain talent and not to like compensate with academic salaries. You know, it was a successful project. We collected many books, we published it in uh, Nature Genetics, but I felt that we could do much better. So then about two years later, I got contacted by MyHeritage, which is a consumer genomics company in Israel, and they asked me whether I would like to join the company for full time. And I thought, you know, that's like my opportunity. They just launched their DNA product. And I thought now I can do it at scale and then quite a lot how companies actually ran and, and how they execute. So I joined the company and actually we had a very successful launch of the DNA product. We created a DNA database of over 5 million people within uh, about four years. And this is the largest DNA database outside of North America. It is kind of like the scientist that loves data. I, it was a lot of fun. And we actually, we published two manuscripts in science using the data for my heritage, just showing like the immense opportunity that you can of scientific inquiries outside of the academic setting. And after being with my heritage, the company exited. And I also felt that, you know, kind of like I learned and accomplished whatever like I wanted when I joined the company. I felt ready to embark upon my own journey, which is starting 11 Therapeutics. And I decided to switch. Like in my heritage, I focused on human genetics. At 11 Therapeutics, we are developing the next generation of RNAi therapies using combinatorial chemistry and AI. So it was an opportunity for me to learn a new topic and to educate myself on many disciplines like molecular biology, chemistry, pharmacology, that I was not an expert, but it gave me the opportunity to switch fields. So this is basically my journey. Great, and even what Yaniv is not uh, mentioning is during his tenure at MyHeritage, during the COVID pandemic, he helped the company open a COVID testing facility that became the biggest one in Israel by far and really helped the company, helped the country in his uh, effort with the COVID pandemic. So that was a kind of amazing work done really quickly in a very startup kind of way. 
yeah, in three weeks, we were able to build like from take a 30,000 square feet space that industrial space that was empty, convert it into a BSL2 plus lab, hire 100 individuals and start like testing. This was quite an accomplishment. Great. So we have two amazing people to talk about this transition from academia to startups. And I want to just set up the discussion. Again, I have nothing against academia. I think all of us did our PhD and postdoc, you know, so we've been there. We love science, right? We have a lot of respect for the basic science done in academia. But on the other hand, we feel there is magic in startups, right? The ability to focus and move fast and get a lot of resources and high caliber people organizing one group, all working on the same mission and impact together. And I think the best labs, and again, we're NFX investing in Mammoth Biosciences, uh, Jennifer Donde, a co-discoverer of uh, CRISPR and a Nobel laureate, is one of the founders. And, you know, you see a lab that is the best in class in basic science, but also we're able to start a bunch of high-impact companies. And the high-impact companies bring more resources to the academic lab. And you have a lot of students, a lot of PhDs, and a lot of postdocs, and some of them want to go into industry, and some of them want to go into academia, and you can serve all of them. So I think there's a lot of benefit in doing both in academia. So if you can tell me, What's your current relationship between academia and startups and your feeling about these kind of different worlds? Yeah, Amri, maybe I'll take that question first. So I think, you know, regardless of whether you are in an academic setting or in a startup or an industry, you know, it's important to be in an environment and in a culture that fosters like rigorous frontier research that can address critical needs for the world and for customers. And I feel lucky to have started at Stanford, like in an academic setting where kind of the interconnection between academia and industry was pretty strong, actually. I think being in the Bay Area, there's kind of a natural bridge between what's happening on campus and what's happening off campus. But I know that's not true of every academic institute. And I think if academia were to kind of chart out a path for the future, hopefully it's one where stronger bridges are facilitated between what's happening at a university where you can have frontier fundamental research and industry, both established industries and new companies. And then when I think a little bit about being a founder, like you mentioned, and like Yaniv was mentioning, I think one of the great things about translating, you know, work out of the laboratory and starting a company is just that there's an exponential, you know, pace with which things pick up. So I feel like the speed of work and discovery is very, rapidly accelerated compared to academia. And that's not only because of the kind of resources and the talent that are out there in the startup space, but I think it's also because when you're in a startup, you know, ultimately your customers are different, right? Like you need to think about your customers in each case and in a startup, ultimately you're doing market-driven work and you want to be able to get your product out there into the hands of customers who have critical needs. You know, these problems aren't going away. Whereas in academia, the pace is a little bit slower. And I think that's often because yeah, research can be a little bit longer term. I'd also mentioned just kind of talking about customers. It's interesting to think about kind of the history of knowledge. And, you know, a few, you know, hundred years ago, basically scientific papers and journals were the fastest method of getting knowledge out into the world. And I think a lot has changed in the last century and certainly even in the past decade. Like now, I think one of the fastest methods of getting knowledge out into the world and analyzing it is actually with advances in machine learning and taking a lot of the, you know, new tools that are allowing us to collect more data and then to be able to get more interpretability from that data from machine learning methods. And I think 
just the ability to process such enormous amounts of data and have access to cutting edge tools is something that's pretty unique about industry, especially about startups. Like I think sometimes it's a little bit harder in an academic institute to be able to you know, have access to all of the resources you need to be able to kind of work with like very well-rounded, like rigorous ML models that help to inform what the product should be. But overall, I feel super lucky to work with NFX that I think really fosters that connection between academia and industry and really values the scientist founder who not only is aware of, you know, frontier research, but then can hop on that exponential curve of innovation to be able to get technologies into the hands of customers soon. Yeah, if I can add to the discussion. So first, let's discuss about maybe some similarities between academia and the industry. And I think in both cases, something that people tend to forget sometimes, we talk about scientists, right? In both cases, you have scientists and sometimes People in academia tend to think that only in academia you can have scientists, but it's not true. Like yeah, There is very good science in industries, just a different one. Also, another similarity when you build your lab, it's an entrepreneurship act to build a lab in academia and to build a company. In both cases, you kind of like try to create something out of nothing, but also it's a bit different types of entrepreneurship. And let's talk about the, some you know, the differences now. So the first difference is that in academia, you have what's called academic freedom, right? People like to say, oh, I have academic freedom. I never ever to get in industry this academic freedom. Now, I'm old enough to understand when someone describes something with two words, it's quite different than one word of describing it. What do I mean by that? Academic freedom doesn't mean freedom. It means that you can maybe select maybe the areas of inquiry. I think there are many actually hidden constraints in academia, what areas of inquiry you can select and how your department feels about these areas of inquiries and so on. But let's assume that you, know, you have kind of like this open field. When you build a company, I think you have much more freedom than the freedom you have in academia. Because in academia, you already have your HR department and there are the university policies and there is a set ladder of salaries that you can pay. And there is only that number of certain grants that you're eligible for. And you have your legal department of your university. So in many ways, you are quite constrained. You don't have so many levers that you can pull as an entrepreneur. And when you build your own company, it's actually a really like a blank canvas that you can draw whatever you want. You set up your own HR policies. You set up your own salaries. You set up the location of the company. And if you want to open in another location, you can do that. It's quite easy. You cannot do these things in academia. So it means that you need to master many more fields when you build a company. And I think for me, this is quite like interesting that I need to understand it legal. I need to understand HR. I need to not just know the science, but other things as well, which makes me feel a much more well-rounded person. So that's, I think, one difference that is quite important. The second difference, which Jen talked about, is time. In academia, nothing would happen if something, a project takes another year. Right? So you graduate in one more year. People usually tell you it's very easy like, to tell postdocs, just wait another year before you apply. As if it's not like one year of a person. You know, we send people to jail for one year. It's quite a lot when they send one year. In academia, these units are very cheap, in a way, units of time. It's not like that in a startup. A year is a lot. It's a difference between make it or break it. And so the pace is very different in companies. It also means that you cannot take projects that are overly risky that would take a long time without a proper runway or without a proper justification. But also it means that you cannot waste. You cannot waste time. In fact, in academia, money is much more important. Like wasting money is much more like constrained, right? Money is more constrained than time. 
in companies usually the opposite like if you tend to exchange money versus on time so i think this kind of like the way that i see this landscape yaniv wanted to uh add to that first of all fully agree that i think one of the fun parts about being in a company is you not only get to be a scientist but you also get to play the role of being hr and being the legal counsel so you're learning so many other different aspects about the entrepreneurial and company enterprise. I just wanted to add in another, I think, difference between uh, academia and industry is who your customers are. And I think a similarity is that in both cases, you always need to be serving your customers and serving the best interests of your customers. But in academia, ultimately, your customers are your students. You want to make sure that you're mentoring students well, that you're training them to do frontier research, and that you're positioning them for a successful career in whatever they've chosen to pursue next. And that could be a startup, it could be a postdoc, it could be a faculty position, could be established industry, could be policy. So in academia, I think really your product you know, are the people that you are giving to the world. Whereas in a startup, you know, your product is the service or the widget or the technology that you're you know, giving to your customers who, you know, could be people, they could be companies. But I think it's just really important to always keep in mind who your customers are and have the interests of the customer in mind when you're building your career, regardless of whether that's in academia or as a founder at a startup. I found it very interesting, you know, the way that you describe the product in academia, because in my mind, kind of like, as you said, who is your customer? I thought you're going to say like, you know, the editors or reviewer three or the readers of the manuscript and the actual product is the manuscript. But yeah, I never thought about it as, you know, the career of my students. I always thought that if we just publish well, their career would take off by this virtue. But it's a very nice way that you put about, you described it. Yeah, and I love what uh, Yaniv said about academic freedom. It reminded me of this caricature of a young, aspiring scientist uh, saying, I will research what I want. And then he goes to grad school and, uh, and it changed to, I'll research what my PI, my professor will tell me to research. And then it becomes like his own PI and he says, like, I'll research whatever will get me tenure. And then he gets tenure and then I'll research whatever will get me grants. And then his professor, Amiturus, he just, you know, he finished with all of that. He said, oh, yes, now I'll research what I, and then he dies. So... Anyhow, let's talk about something else. I want to ask you, what advice would you give? Because you talked about your students. What advice would you give aspiring PhDs or postdoc about, you know, feeling about starting a company? And I want to start with Yaniv because just recently, you know, you published on Twitter an advice for PhDs not to do a postdoc. And you saw this long thread between people in academia and industry about the merits of doing or not doing a postdoc. So maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, thank you. And, and I think on the podcast, I can develop this into a more nuanced like, approach to like whether to do a postdoc. I think, you know, if you love science, go do a PhD. I think PhD is quite important. The good thing about a PhD is that there is an end and there is a committee that helps you like, you know, the process needs to be finished at some point. And there are multiple individuals that are responsible that it will be finished. You cannot stay there forever. And you get with something tangible, which is a PhD. Hopefully you get some knowledge, you get some publications, but you get something that, you know, there is a unit that we can call it a PhD. I think a postdoc is a very tricky position. And my tweet was in Hebrew. It was more relevant to Israelis because Israelis need to go abroad when they do their postdoc. It's like almost impossible to do a good postdoc in Israel. It's discouraged by the Israeli academia to do a postdoc here. So they need to travel. Usually they travel to the US. At this point, since we're usually getting married earlier than the US population, they are married. They have kids maybe one child already, and then they take their family abroad 
they don't understand like that the salary that they will get will probably know they will be very close to the poverty line if not below the poverty line i had a friend at mit that did a postdoc and while he was there his family was below the poverty line in massachusetts which is ridiculous right you can get a phd like a doctor in mit is below the poverty line so they don't understand that and they don't appreciate that also usually their family will grow as they move to their postdoc so money will become even more of an issue and the process has no end right like they are not so like they do that and it can take like four years five years six years nobody knows they might need to switch pis and sometimes people do them oh just wait another year before you apply so they waste a very good amount of their most productive years on this like lingering like just like you know like doing like postdocing basically so i think it's a very big decision that most people that just because they finished their phd and everything they were taught in the phd's go do a postdoc they don't really consider so they're not considering the ramifications for their families of doing a postdoc and this is the reason why i think they need to like think very deeply whether they want to do a postdoc and also look with sober mind about their chances to land a pi position which is quite scarce especially in good places right like yeah you can live in some you know flyover kind of state in the us like not like be close to any israeli quite far away from your community and yeah you'll be a pi but then you know do you really want that so this is i think the reason why people need to think very very carefully before they do a postdoc and the default from switching from a phd to a postdoc should be kind of like not be the default it should be the exception so that's my position yaniv i actually think that's a really convincing argument and i hadn't read your tweet before coming onto the podcast but i think i agree with basically everything you said i think we've entered an age in academia where more and more people consider a postdoc as the natural next step but what i've tried to tell my students is that it's not for everyone and it's not needed for everyone when i have had students who have wanted to go into a postdoc you know i've encouraged them to think about what they want to learn and what their learning goals are before they start their independent career and if they feel like they have the technological foundations from their phd to either go off into industry or to start their own company and they already have you know a pretty solid foundational toolkit to be successful in what they want for their career then I don't think it's worth going to do a postdoc but if there are still new skills that they want to learn and that will be really helpful in their future career be that in academia or in a startup that's where I think a postdoc can be very beneficial and like you said Yaniv I think it's really important to think about what you want the scope of that postdoc to be and how long it will be I come more from a science and engineering or physics and engineering backgrounds where postdocs typically are a little shorter like maybe typically 2 to 3 years i know in biology they can be a bit longer and to your point this is a time in your life where i wouldn't so much say your creativity and your productivity are at your peak but you know it's valuable years and you want to make sure that you're getting the most value out of that time regardless of whether it's a postdoc or starting a company or going into industry I think a postdoc can be advantageous for those who also maybe are a bit undecided about what they want to do next and you know maybe haven't found that killer application for a technology that they've worked on or want to explore a little bit more. You know, I think if you have kind of the financial wherewithal to commit to a postdoc and know that you're not going to making an industry level salary and certainly not, you know, writing home with each paycheck. If you're not sure what you want, I think there are many advantages to doing a 
postdoc provided you can handle the lower pay for a few years as you decide on what that next step is, because it is a great time to take the tools you have from your PhD and then start to apply them while simultaneously learning new skills. I know for me, I got a ton out of doing a postdoc and worked with a you know great community of scholars, some of the smartest people I know, and they taught me a ton of new skills without which I, I certainly would not be where I am today. You're listening to the NFX Podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, feel free to rate and review our channel and share this conversation with someone you think would benefit from these founder insights. And now, back to the show. It's such an interesting discussion because, you know, I did a postdoc and it, for me at least, it was a great experience. But again, we didn't have kids. Both me and my wife did our postdoc together in the Bay Area, in Berkeley and Stanford. But I have to say, looking back, I think I gained more from commuting between Berkeley to Stanford and back, listening to podcasts on entrepreneurship and, and starting a company than four years of pipating aimlessly in the lab. <laughs> so yeah, go ahead, Yannick. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that, you know, Jen said that she spoke with her students about career options and not to go to a postdoc. This is not the exception, not the common discussion. Most PIs, since they were just been in academia and never thought about anything else, they just encourage their students to, to apply for a postdoc. In fact, some of them would even view it as a failure if their student does not pursue an academic career. So I think it's quite special what Jen described. Also, I think something similar to both of us, you know, you had, Jen, you already secured your PI position before doing a postdoc, so you knew that it's going to be a very defined area that you're going to do a postdoc. I, I basically skipped the postdoc, luckily, and I was able to start my own lab, which was a bit like, you know, difficult at the beginning to do that. But I think it was much better than just to be like, you know, this like endless postdoc in a way. But I think for people, you know, like something that maybe I think a bit different than Jen is that if you're unsure what to do after a PhD, I wouldn't go for a postdoc. I would do two things. Either ask your PI to stay a bit longer so you don't start something new, just kind of like, you know, maybe linger for another like half a year or just take like a long vacation, go somewhere, you know, go to like South America if you can afford that for like six months, you know, think about life before because once you commit to a postdoc, since we are like, you know, we inertia is a very strong force in life. Once you are in, it's very hard to stop, right? There are some costs, there is societal pressure, there is pressure on yourself, right? Am I, am I a quitter? I'm not a quitter, right? I want to, and, and so by taking this decision, it's almost like a diet, right? When like a good diet starts when you go to the supermarket and you buy stuff. It's not when you're fond of your freezer. Then it's like, it's already lost battle if you don't have the right things. So that I think the same thing with the postdoc. Like if you're unsure about it, don't start. Do something else and consider all different options. Go interview with companies. At least learn about companies. See the options and then decide when you have more data. As scientists, we like data. We convince ourselves that data is good. Why don't we apply the same approach to our life? That's a great discussion, by the way. And I think it's a great segue for the next question because the next question is, you know, you're a PhD. You don't know what you want to do. You want to start a company. You want to stay in academia. You're not sure if you're up to starting a company. How do you know it's right for you? How do both of you knew it's right for you? And then if you decide to do it, you know, what was your first highest value moves? Like what are the most important things if you decide to go for it? Yeah, great question. One thing that I encourage all my students to think about is, you know, imagine, you know, future grandchildren or, you know, future generations of little kids. And, you know, if they're looking up to you when you're in your 80s and they say, what did you do with your life? You probably want to have a good answer to that. And I think the answer that, you know, students and individuals come up with often kind of points to what their, you know, internal compass is telling them to do. So, you know, if PhDs are wondering kind of 
what to do next and, and how to know if it's right for them, I'd say, you know, think about like where their internal compass is pointing and, you know, what they hope to accomplish. And of course, like, you know, plans never unfold exactly as you want them to, but it's good to keep in mind kind of, you know, big picture how you might want to contribute in your life. And then oftentimes I'll have students think through like what really energizes them, like what, you know, uh, gets them super enthusiastic. And then also like what drains them, because I think if they go through that sort of exercise, you know, it helps kind of figure out what is a good career path, right? Would that be in academia and in industry and in policy and communications? There are a whole host of careers available to scientists and thinking about, you know, what energizes you? Is it, you know, lecturing and giving talks? Is it, you know, thinking quietly, writing papers, being creative? Is it, you know, networking? Is it thinking through like, you know, engineering and tinkering and building? And kind of if you map out those energizers and those drainers, I think that can help, you know, point you to like where the best fit is. And then I'd say if you think you're passionate about starting a company, and I can say it's been like the most fun I've had in my career. Career, so I can highly recommend it. Think carefully about where you are in your technology development because you know companies move at these extremely rapid speeds and you want to make sure that the technology is at a right stage to be able to capitalize on that. You know, maybe it's a bit like, you know, surfing. If a big wave is coming your way, you want to make sure you've picked up enough speed so that way you can catch it and enjoy the thrill of surfing rather than just having it wash over you and you get, you know, crushed to shore. And then, you know, I'd say two other pieces of advice before I hand it over to Neem. Yeah, he was mentioning that a postdoc, you know, comes with you know, certain financial risks and so does starting a company. And I think starting a company is the huge privilege. Like I feel super fortunate to have been given, you know, this opportunity. So just think about where you are in your life journey. And if you're able to handle, you know, the sorts of like, you know, financial and time and personal risk that a company might come with. But I'd say assuming you can handle that, like just go for it. Like don't be afraid of failure. And one of my favorite athletes, Michael Jordan said, I have failed and failed and failed again. And that's why I succeed. So I think if you go into things with a growth mindset and are excited to learn and excited to make a difference, you know, ultimately you'll be successful. I think these are all like great advice for students. I would like also to highlight something that is important in the discussion. We should not kind of like skip that, which is what price do you pay when you move from academia to industry? And it's something that it, people just tend to skip that, but I think it's important to talk about it. Because I think one of the main difficulties of switching from academia to industry is that first, it's like, it's very hard to come back, right? Maybe Jen and I, we have more opportunities, but it's, you know, not like we are like, again, after our PhD or postdoc, you know, trying to look for a position. So it's like you are, and I want to highlight that there is a part of you that losing part of your identity. And I think that's part of the main difficulty when you're in academia, you are part of this nation called academia, which is, you know, it's like, it's a global nation, right? Like span like multiple countries. I can speak with someone from Japan that is in academia and we can speak very quickly, understand each other, right? Because we know that's the same system. It means that you have an institute that your name is attached to it, right? Like saying like, I'm from Stanford, from Columbia University. These are good places. And it's part like, you know, it gives you gravitas. It means that you're on a certain track to do something. It gives you a sense of like community, postdocs everywhere. There are, you know, societies, scientific societies. So I also want to highlight, you know, part of the difficulty of people to switch from academia to industry is this sense of suddenly they are outside of their community. They're losing something about their identity. And we need to acknowledge that. So that's when I think, you know, when you think about like switching from academia to industry, the advice about students, whether, you know, to start a company or not is to kind of like 
ask people whether they really want that, right? To start a company, it's a difficult thing. It's also okay to go and take a position in another startup or in a big company just to learn the ropes, to understand how it's like to do research in industry, which is quite different. So I think that's the advice, just to kind of like let them up the possibilities, but also acknowledge, I think, this difficult process of leaving your community is not easy. I think today is easier, but in Israel, for instance, when you leave academia, people look at you, hmm, what are you doing? Like, are you a quitter? What's going on? So we need to acknowledge that as well. Yeah, very, very correct. And I see it personally with my family. Even. So I have to say what's my advice as a venture capital now to students if they think, if they don't know if they want to start a company. First of all, you don't want to start a company because you want to start a company, right? It's hard and difficult. And it's good if you understand how VC think, right? When we look at you, when we look at the company, we ask ourselves, is it big enough, right? If everything you told us is right, how big can it be? And you should ask yourself the same thing. Is something I'm doing is really that impactful? The second thing we ask people like, what's your defensible magic? Like what's your magical technology and why nobody else can compete with it? Because that's such a magical, amazing thing. And if you don't have magic, what I would tell people, go find magic, right? You're in the best university in the world. You can talk to your peers. You see what other people are doing. Maybe some other lab have this magical technology that, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, CRISPR back in the day. I'm sure there was other postdoc or PhD students that understood how, you know, meaningful CRISPR will be before the first pioneers started the first CRISPR company. And they could have been the CEOs or founders just by taking them and saying like, hey, let's do it ourselves. And third, you need to ask yourself, are we the right people and build like the right funding team uh, to go on the journey with you? So, you know, if you have magic, if you have friends and uh, colleagues that you think that can join you, and if you think that what you're doing is that impactful and can change the world, then definitely go do it. Yep, I'm ready. I think that's amazing advice. One other piece of advice that I would give to students thinking about founding a company is to think about your value proposition. And I was reading this incredible book called Innovation that kind of is by the SRI team and talks about a lot of the innovations that happened there in the 80s and 90s. And what's nice is they lay out a value proposition, you know, almost like a science. So they say you need to think about N, A, B, C, where N is the need. Like what does your customer need? A is the approach. B is the benefits per cost, and then C is the competition. So if I had to give concrete advice to someone who's thinking about starting a company, I'd say, you know, just make a slide and write down your value proposition. And even for those who are thinking about academia, I think like if you're writing research proposals, it's still important to think about your value proposition, but your customers are probably different. But then if you're founding a company, kind of network to test your value proposition. And Amri was giving the great example of CRISPR. You know, maybe you've identified a really great need. You know, you know who the competition is in the space, but your approach needs some improvement. And, you know, probably grad students walking around or reading through papers, you know, if they wanted to do something with gene editing, if they came across CRISPR, they'd be like, oh, I can change my approach and you this. So kind of network to test your value proposition and really refine it as you're thinking about starting a company. And I'd say like, as you're doing that networking, you know, you'll get to what is, you know, a really key, like critical value proposition that has all the elements that I'm re-mentioned, like the defensible magic, you know, it has the great team and it has the big enough market. Yeah. So we see a lot of scientist founders, a lot of, you know, PhDs thinking about starting companies. And sometimes they tell me like, they don't know if they have what it takes. Like they think they need the business experience, the right background. So I'm asking you as both very successful people in academia that start their own company, what do you think translated well in this move from academia to starting a company? And what was hard for you? Like, where do you think you actually need the help and surround yourself with the right people to support you with? 
maybe I'll start. So I think first, I think business in general, it's easy, right? There is nothing complicated really about business. It's, by the way, all the math in business I learned is linear equations. It's a line. You never stack, or maybe exponential growth. Maybe that's like the more complicated stuff, right? But it's super like relatively easy. But there is some jargon that you need to master. There are certain things like conventions that you need to know. But I don't think, you know, if you can understand how CRISPR works and how to do like, you know, high throughput, like DNA synthesis or things like that, you can really understand, you know, like it's not rocket science. It just takes some time to learn and understand the conventions. That's for people who think that, you know, they need to get some business training. If you know how to sell a car, you can basically do well in your company. You know how to negotiate, things like that. I think that one good thing that I did when I started Leaven was I found a partner for my journey. It's a person coming from very different background than me. He's not a scientist. So multiple startups before. So like, you know, very good, like human skills, much better than me. Someone that I can trust, someone I can speak with. So, and that's, I think, one big difference. You know, when you start a lab, there is only one PI in the lab. When you start a company, you can have a co-founder with you, a few co-founders together. It's really about team building. And I think that's the beauty of building companies, that you build really teams that work together. So I think that's like my advice, to find some partner for this journey, maybe more than one partner, join to a group, see that you guys like, like each other, you can work together because it's going to be like more complicated than marriage, right? In marriage... You, you can divorce and the company can kill the company affect like many, many more people than you just your immediate family. So yeah, that's my advice. Yaniv, I think that's great advice. And I know earlier on in the podcast, you were mentioning that when you're starting a company, you have to think about not only the science and the engineering, but the HR and the legal and being in the early stages of my company, I've had some calls where people who don't know me are like, oh, are you the HR representative? Or, you know, in a different call, oh, are you the legal counsel? So I think it's kind of a, almost an opportunity and an advantage to learn some of these new skills when you're taking on the founder role. And like you mentioned, Omri, I think I was concerned initially starting a company that I didn't have the business experience, but it turns out a lot of what I learned in academia actually is business. And like Yaniv mentioned that the math is relatively straightforward. Like when you're thinking about, you know, the market and the business, you think about, you know, how many units are you going to make? How many customers are there? And what's the price per unit? So in a sense, it's some of the simplest math to think about. And really the key goes back to that value proposition, right? Like that NABC and like thinking about what really is the need that your customers have and how big is that market opportunity? And I think a lot of times as a researcher in a university, I've seen students and postdocs who, you know, present and they think they are presenting a need that is important for customers, but, you know, really they're emphasizing the approach, you know, and their approach becomes the need. So I think, you know, academia almost needs to be recast a little bit to really focus on like, what are the core needs? <laughs> and then when you're starting a company, think about how those needs, you know, translate with your approach to, you know, something that has a pretty big competitive advantage. I also want to echo Yaniv's advice on uh, finding a great partner. I have two co-founders one of whom was my PhD student. And as a professor, I often view my students as, you know, team members, like we're working together to solve really challenging problems. So a lot of times people ask like, oh, how is it, you know, with a student and professor co-founding a company, but we've always kind of viewed ourselves as teammates anyway. So I think it's pretty amazing that he had, you know, in a way, almost the world's best incubator to develop the technology as a PhD student working in my lab. And now we get to bring it forward into a product. So he brings 
brings a lot of the technical expertise. And then my other co-founder is my partner in business, but also my partner in life. And he just has amazing expertise in the kind of machine learning data analysis. So he's able to provide kind of the, you know, software and analysis side of things that is completely orthogonal to the expertise that I would bring to the team. So I think as your founding company, think through like who your team is going to be and what sort of culture you want to have and kind of who best, you know, can help usher like your product out into the world. Yeah, I would like to add to that, you know, the reason why we at NFX like scientist founders is also my experience being a scientist founder is, you know, there are several things we know about you. If you finish your PhD, especially in biology, right, or in any other science, like we know that you can learn that you're smart and you can learn. We know that you can learn new things all the time. That's what you have to do. We know that you can design a scientific experiment, have a hypothesis, test it, and learn from that. That translates very well into starting a startup. But mainly, we know that you have grit and determination because all of us know that, you know, you do a scientific experiment, you work very hard, and then nothing happens. It doesn't work. You don't even know why. And you have to pick yourself up Try again, try again, try again, right? Don't give up and have this optimism that, you know, in four or five years, you'll get your PhD, you'll have enough results, publish and get your PhD. But you have to have grit. And I think grit and mainly caring, like, you know, you can hire a business founder, you can hire a CEO, but you cannot hire caring about your specific science, like knowing about it more than anybody else in the world and caring more than anybody else in the world. I found mistakes in legal documents that my lawyer did, my very expensive thousand dollar an hour lawyers because I cared more than they cared. So, you know, I actually took the time and read everything. And from, you know, first principle, I understand what's right and what's wrong and I could do more. So I think this is why we love scientist founders and NFX because you care, you're smart, you have the greed and you can learn. I think in general, my call for action for scientist founders is, you know, we like to say biology is the most advanced technology on Earth. Sometimes it feels to me like an alien spaceship that just crashed, landed on Earth, and we're trying to figure out what all these gizmos are doing. You know, biology is quite amazing. It's non-technology that actually works. It can self-reproduce, take CO2 and gases and, you know, create everything that uh, we care about. You know, it can solve problems and, you know, world problems, things like health and food and the environment. You can solve all this problem with biology. But, you know, I believe there is one technology that is very human, that is even stronger than biology. It's entrepreneurship because entrepreneurs can imagine the world as they think it should exist. And then are just so pissed off that the world today is not the world that they can imagine that just by using their sheer force of determination and just being pissed off, they can rip a hole in the universe like a magical wormhole and just drag all of us you know, sometimes kicking and screaming to this new world that they imagine. So I encourage the smartest people in the world to solve some of humanity's biggest challenges using the most advanced technologies, you know, biology and technology. Amri, I think that's an amazing point. One of my favorite quotes is from Barack Obama, who mentioned, imagine the world as it should be, not as it is. And I think he so poignantly put how, you know, entrepreneurs basically see the world as it should be, and then, you know, use their expertise, whether it's in science or policy or, you know, technology, what have it to create that world for all of us to enjoy. Totally agree. On the one hand, I don't think I would do anything differently because I think, you know, the path I chose set me up well for where I want to be right now. I will say that I think 
kind of looking back with 2020 vision, I can see that most of my mentors and the people who inspired me in my academic career actually were the entrepreneurial types. And yeah, just to name a few examples, like Jody Simone, who founded Carbon, now is a faculty member at Stanford and before Carbon was at NC State. Steve Chu has also founded several companies and became energy secretary for the United States. Stephanie Jeffrey, she's a cancer oncologist who both is a researcher and a clinician and has served on several major boards. I guess I had wished I would have recognized sooner that many of my mentors were entrepreneurs. And I think sometimes I almost felt like a square peg in a round hole. Like I felt like I didn't fully fit into the academic environment, but I wish I'd maybe recognized a little bit sooner that the people I really admired were those entrepreneurs and then had taken the steps that they ultimately advised me to take. Like, oh, think about <laughs> yeah how you can form you know stronger connections with like the Bay Area, like entrepreneurial community to start a company. Maybe I would invest less in some meaningless academic stuff just to you know, advance my, like, through the academic lot, like, it's like, almost like meaningless, some stuff that is a waste of time and you do it just because to impress other academics, I don't know, stuff that was not so much of an interest to me right now, or like, even when I did it, but I had to do it just to like, I don't know, like some committees and things like that. I always try to like, you know, run away from these things, but I had to do a few of these because I thought it would improve my odds and maybe it was just a waste of time. Great. That was a fun discussion. So thank all of you for joining us today and go out there and reap a hole in the universe. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Amri. At NFX, we believe creating something of true significance starts with seeing what others do not. Send this episode to any founder friends that may need these insights and frameworks and rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to the NFX podcast. Podcast.